and making our way through the book of James. We've talked about trials. We've talked about wealth. We've talked about temptation. We've talked about wisdom. We've talked about anger. We've talked about hypocrisy. We've talked about showing mercy. And today we're going to talk about faith and works. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. A few years ago, I was at a Waffle House because that's the kind of person that I am. And I don't know if you've been in a Waffle House recently, but at the Waffle House, the kitchen is just in the same room as where you eat. It's just all out there in front of you, and they have a row of booths. And so I'm sitting in a booth with a friend, and I can see down the row, and, and in the booth right behind us is uh, three people. And the best way to describe them is that they looked haggard. I don't even know if that's a real word, but that you can get the feel of what they looked like. Life had been hard on them is the impression that I had. And, and so I'm meeting with my friend and we're talking and about 30 minutes into you know, dinner, um, there's some commotion in the booth right behind us. And I can see what's going on among those three people. And I see this man's face and it just goes totally blank. And he falls over onto the shoulder of the person he's sitting next to. And so that booth starts screaming and there's a lot of commotion and somebody yells out, check his vital signs. And so they start checking his pulse. They start checking his breathing. And the woman that was with them, she was not really helping. All she was doing was screaming his name and hitting him. That was her strategy, scream his name and hit, hitting him. And after about five good whacks, he comes back to life. And then he sets back up and now the restaurant has kind of calmed down a little bit and we're still waiting to see what they're going to do next. You know what they do next? They finish their meal. <laughs> now, I don't know what the appropriate response is to watching someone sort of maybe die and then not die, but I don't think finishing your waffle should be on that that list, but that's what they did. They finished their meal. They didn't call 911. They didn't, you know, ask for the check to then drive him to the hospital. They didn't ask for the check then to go and lay him at, at home down in the bed. No, they just, you know, they just finished their meal, you know. Now, I'm sure all of you have life saving experience. You've been in that situation many times, but just in case you haven't, and, and but I'm sure you have watched TV, when something happens, checking vital signs is the first thing that you do. You check for pulse, you check for breathing, for those signs of life. And what we're reading in James chapter 2 today, the main idea of today is if you want to check 
the genuineness of your faith, your good works will be the vital signs. Your good works are the proof of life of your faith. A few things I'd love for you to write down and remember before we leave. Number one, faith without the evidence of good works is lifeless. Faith without the evidence of works is lifeless. We're going to work backwards this morning. Verse 20, foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Then skip down to verse 20. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So it's talking about in the same way that without your spirit, without your soul, your body would just be lifeless. So is our faith if it doesn't have the evidence of works. It's dead. And then he uses an example in verse 21. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And then he uses another example In verse 25, and in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? So two Old Testament stories. The first one, Abraham. God chooses him in his own sovereignty to be the very first seed of what would become the Jewish people, what would become God's people. And he asked Abraham, listen, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. All you have to do is leave everything that you have and are and come and follow me. And Abraham does. Rahab was a woman living in Jericho. Jericho was a well-fortified city that was right in the middle of the land that God had promised and set aside for his own people. And when God's people sent in some spies, sent in some messengers to check out the lay of the land, to do the groundwork of what that conquest would look like, Rahab, instead of being loyal to her own people of Jericho, actually showed loyalty to the people of God. And James is saying, look, Abraham and Rahab, they were justified by their works. Their faith was perfected, meaning their faith was authenticated. By their works, because the question that James has in his mind is how can we tell when it's genuine faith? He says, You can tell that there is life in that faith when there are good works. Now, look at verse 24, because verse 24 is a semi controversial verse in the scripture. He says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you have some familiarity with the rest of Scripture, that might sound odd to you because it's almost the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul said. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works. So Paul seems to be lifting up faith and minimizing works, but here it looks like James is minimizing faith and lifting up works. So which is it? Well, what's happening here? In fact, it, it, just to add a little bit more to the confusion, in, in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul uses the same story of Abraham to prove not works, but actually faith. So what, do we have a Bible that has a bunch of contradictions in it that, that we shouldn't uh, trust it? No. In fact, most people assume about us, that when we come to the word of God, we take our brain and we set it aside, that we essentially read the scripture as if we're not that intelligent, but we are intelligent people. And everybody said, amen. Amen. And we can read and understand when different audiences are being addressed. We can read and understand because we read with our minds and not just our hearts. When, When there's a different audience, 
when there's a different reason for writing. And that's what's happening between Paul and James. Apostle Paul, you remember, he was actually a persecutor of the church and he has a radical conversion in Acts chapter 9. And after that radical conversion, he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus. And the way that he would preach it uh, to God's own people would would be to say, listen, you've been trusting in the works of the law. You've been trying to be uh, obeyers of the law in order to get favor from God. But favor from God doesn't come from obeying the law. Favor from God comes to being connected to Jesus, to to, believing in Jesus. And so he really emphasized the faith of believing in Jesus as the way to salvation, which is 100% accurate. Well, you know what happens when an accurate message is given into the hands of weak and sinful people like us. Sometimes we pervert it. Sometimes we twist it. And that's what happened with some of Paul's original listeners. They had taken Paul's message of grace and they had used it as a license to sin. They began to say, listen, we believe in Jesus. Therefore, we can do whatever we want. We believe in Jesus, therefore I'm not gonna leave my former pagan lifestyle. We believe in Jesus, it's a get out of jail free card. I can live however I want, I can do whatever I want and because of grace through faith, I have no consequences. And what James is writing about, who he's writing to is he's writing to those people who have perverted the Apostle Paul's pure gospel. And he's saying, listen, your faith that you're claiming isn't genuine because you would know it was genuine based on the works that would come from it. James is not instituting a scale system that a lot of us have in our hearts when we're born, that we put uh, all of our good stuff on one side and we put all of our bad stuff on the other side and whichever weighs more, that determines our eternal destiny. That determines how God receives us. If we do a lot of good stuff, then God welcomes us into heaven. If we do more bad stuff, then God pushes us out to hell. James is not saying that. James is not uh, instituting an addition system. That yeah, it starts with faith in Jesus, but then if you really wanna be a part of the people of God, then you have to add on the works of the law. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, if you wanna be able to test the genuineness of your faith, you test it by your works. If you want to check the pulse of your faith, the proof of life is in your works. Second thing that I want you to see, faith without evidence of works is just an empty claim. It's just an empty claim. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. When I was in high school, I was a part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA. Many of you have have heard of that and we would do weekly meetings. Well, at my high school, in the second half of the year, they did one day that was just a photo shoot for all of the different clubs, the Glee Club, the Debate Club, the Speech Club, and then all the other clubs, among which was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So when it was our turn, we all got up into the bleachers of the gym and they had the, the camera person there ready to go. And I turned around and looked and by God's grace, a miracle happened. Our, our numbers tripled in size. Because there were a lot of people who were like, hey, I'm an athlete and I consider myself a Christian and I want to get my name in the yearbook as many times as possible. And so sure enough, I'll try to sneak into this uh, into this picture. And, you know, we didn't keep good records of of who was actually in the FCA and who wasn't. And and we're not heartless people to be able to go, you know, go around and go, I don't think you're a Christian and I don't think you're a Christian. I don't think you're a Christian. So get out of our picture. That doesn't sound like something that Jesus would do. 
And so sure enough, our picture in my high school yearbook is a huge FCA that was three times larger than we actually were because people just wanted to be in the picture. And that happens. That happens. People all the time saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I consider myself a Christian. When you really start talking to them, the reality is, is that they just got in the picture. That's what coming to church is for a lot of people. I'm here because when I want God to look down, I want him to see me in church. I want in the picture. And some of us are putting our faith and trust that coming to church is actually what makes us a member of God's family. But it's not just about claiming. It's not just about raising your hand and saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. There has to be something behind it because look what he says in verse 19. You believe that God is one, meaning you claim that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. We see this lived out in Mark chapter one. Jesus goes to teach in the synagogue. And he's teaching so powerfully there that there's a demon-possessed man in the back. And that demon is agitated by the authority and power of Jesus. And the demon screams out in the middle of the synagogue. And you know what the demon says? You, Jesus, are the Holy One of God. He doesn't say something twisted. He doesn't say something perverted. He just says something that's actually true. So James is saying, listen. There better be more to your faith than a claim that even the demons would agree with. There better be more life in your faith than something that even hell would acknowledge. There better be more to your faith than just saying, hey, I'm in the picture. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, if you brought your Bible with you. Jesus speaks. About the same idea. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. So again, Jesus says, it's not your mouth that makes the claims. It's your fruit. And then he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you depart from me. You lawbreakers. What Jesus is telling us is that there's coming a day when we stand before God's seat of judgment that a lot of us will go, hey, I was in the picture. I was in the picture. Didn't 
Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we heal in your name? Didn't we teach in your name? Hey, I was in the picture and Jesus is going to say, I didn't see you. That you weren't actually in the family. That you weren't actually saved. That you didn't have faith that was genuine. You were just trying to get in the picture. It's a wake up call for those of us who have the vocabulary of the church without the follow through. Those of us who can come and we can talk the talk. We can blend in. We know the routine. We know when to stand. We know when to sit. We know how do we look, look like we're praying or we're not really praying. We know how to even maybe navigate the Bible. We know how to speak the language. We have the vocabulary, but we don't have the follow through. Jesus would say, if you don't, can't look at your life and see the fruit, and the fruit is good works, if you can't see the fruit, it doesn't matter if you try to get in the picture. Because our claims are not the proof of life. Our good works are. And the last thing, and this is where we'll finish, faith without the evidence of works leads to empty gestures. Faith without the evidence of works leads to empty gestures. Keep your finger in Matthew. Turn back to James. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. So he uses the example of this empty gesture, which could be common in any church and was probably common in the churches that he was writing to. He says, suppose a brother or sister, a fellow church member comes in and and they're hungry and they don't have any clothes. They're really in bad shape. And all you as church people say is, hey, go in peace, keep warm and eat well. But you don't actually come through with a coat. You don't actually come through with any food. You don't actually give them anything that they need. He's like, what good are your words? Because those of us who have claims of faith, but without the evidence of works, that's all we really have to offer is empty gestures. Empty gestures are very common in the church, even from those of us with the best attention. Uh, you recognize a few of them. Like, uh, like all of us have heard someone say, hey, I'm praying for you. And you know, really that was code word for I like you, but I'm gonna immediately forget that we had this conversation by the time I get in the parking lot. Hey, I've been praying for you. Because it just feels like the right thing to say when somebody pours out their heart to you and their life is going bad. Uh, Hey, praying for you. Another empty gesture is uh, God told me. We hear that a lot in the church. You know, I was praying and God told me, which is usually code word for I really want you to do what I want you to do, but I'm not sure you'll do it just because I said to do it. So I'm gonna add in God to get you to do it. God told me that you're supposed to buy me lunch today. I don't know why. He just gave that to me in a vision when I imagined you paying for my meal. It was miraculous. God told me. This is just an empty gesture. Another one. I've been reading the works of then fill in the blank, whatever author. I remember when we were starting the church, 
uh, some people began to kind of hear that we were doing it and they wanted to, to meet and talk about it to see if they were potentially interested in, in joining us. And so I was having lunch with this amazing guy, really well put together guy, the kind of guy that you just want to be impressive to. I don't know. I know you're above that, but, uh, you know, just one of those guys that uh, just draws out in all of your insecurity. And so you, you know, you just want to uh, just really show him that you're something. And so we're having this conversation. And he says, what books are you reading right now? And I'm like, gosh, am I reading any books? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am reading a book. And at the time, this is a true story, I was reading this book by this Puritan author named John Owen. Now, I'll just be honest. I don't read books by Puritan authors very often because, you know, you have to read one sentence like five times just to understand what the sentence says. A lot of good information, incredibly hard to get out. And, uh, but at that time, I really was reading this book. And so I say, yeah, I'm reading this book by uh, John Owen. And I told him what the title was. And he, see, it, it just coming out of my mouth. I mean, have you ever just like wanted to punch yourself in the face. Like just as I said it, I was like, oh gosh, that sounds so sanctimonious. That just sounds so self-righteous. Like I hate myself right now. It's true, but like, I wish it wasn't true almost like, you know, but, but we say those things. We say those things. We say those things if they're true. We say those things sometimes if they're not true. And, and why do we say them? We say them so that we can hear ourselves saying them. We also say things like, Oh, our family doesn't fill in the blank. Oh, our family, we don't eat sugar. Because Leviticus 7 says, Oh, our family, we, we don't even own a television. And praise God for you. I own one. You know. And then they get that like disappointed look on their face. Like, oh, maybe I'm going to reconsider my church options now. Oh, our family doesn't do this. Our family doesn't do that. Our family doesn't. Listen, and if your family doesn't, great. But the only reason that we say that stuff is so we can drop hints of our own righteousness. Just sow the seeds of my righteousness in your money. Just empty gestures. Just empty words. Ah, go in peace. Praying for you. Keep warm, eat well. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter five when he said these very familiar words. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Look, the light, giving off light, is the evidence that it really is the light. If there really is truly a light, then it will have light shining off of it. If your faith is real, it will give off good works. It will. James in chapter one, he talks about spiritual maturity. Listen, if your spiritual maturity doesn't lead to more good works, you are not spiritually mature. You may be a Bible scholar, but you are not spiritually mature. You may be a prayer warrior, but you are not spiritually mature. You may be a, uh, an incredible 
consistent church attender, but you are not spiritually mature until your faith has the evidence of good works. And look what Jesus says. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works. So he equates our light shining before men and our good works. So we could go back and read verse 14 in a different way. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, what he's also saying is, you are the good works of the world, which I cannot think of a more timely moment than this to embrace that. The world is scary right now. The world is peddling fear into the deepest parts of our marrow. That's all the news is right now. Fear, sowing enough fear in you so that you will tune in the next time to learn what else you should be afraid of. Afraid of things in our city, afraid of things in our country, afraid of things on planes, afraid of things on ground, afraid of things around the world. Just fear, fear, fear. And it's real. That's real. You can't tell yourself, oh, it's not real. It's real fear. But we need to resist in this moment the tendency for us to retreat, to pull in and to pull back because this is our moment. This is our moment when our, the world needs our good works. This is our, our moment when the world needs our light. We are the good works of the world. What an incredible testimony we would have if in the middle of this culture of fear, we said, yeah, hey, we're afraid, same as everybody else. But we're not gonna stop. We're not gonna give up. We're gonna put the pedal to the metal because this is our moment. And this is when the world needs us most. This is when the world will recognize us the most, see the genuineness of your faith, the authenticity evidenced by your good works. And what does Jesus say? They will give glory to your Father in heaven. If I asked you if your faith was alive today, what would you say? If if I asked you to check your pulse, pulse of your faith, what would you say? Maybe you're like me and you're like, "There's there's a pulse in there. I can feel it, but I wish it was a little bit stronger. I wish there was a little bit more blood pumping through that vein. I wish it would be a little bit more obvious. Maybe you're like me today and that's where you are. You're like, I can feel the life in there. I can see it. I can look back and I can see some good works, but I can do more and I want to do more. I want to feel more of a pulse. Well, what do I do? What do I do? Where do I start? You know, uh, how many of you uh, already started listening to Christian mu- Christmas music? I'm, I'm raising my hand right here. Who's, who's with me? Who loves Jesus with me? All you people don't love Jesus. Uh, anybody got their Christmas tree up yet? Yeah, come on with it. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, these people, we bless them because they love Jesus. This is good work that they're doing. They want to celebrate the birth of our Lord, you know? I don't know what the re- wrong with the rest of you Scrooges, you know? But I started listening to Christmas music sometime in October. Amanda says it is early October. I disagree. I think more late October. But I've been listening to it for a while. And, and this year, my favorite song is uh, The Little Drummer Boy. That's my jam right now. I don't have Bieber's new album, but I got The Little Drummer Boy rocking in my truck. And uh, I love the, the song, The Little Drummer Boy. Just a little background for you if you don't can't hear it in your mind right now, rump-a-pum-pum. Uh, it, it's a story. It's a story about a little boy who's there in 
the manger scene when the wise men come to offer their gifts to Jesus. The wise men offer gold and frankincense and myrrh. And, and the little drummer boy, right, he's freaked out for two reasons. Number one, he didn't know he was supposed to bring a gift to this moment. And number two, he's poor. And he really doesn't have any gift to offer. That's what he says in the song to Jesus. You know, I'm a poor boy too. Jesus, you're poor because you're being born in a manger. You're being born in a stable. You're being born maybe in a cave, not in a house where normal babies are born. You're poor. And hey, I'm poor too. And he says, I, I didn't have any gift to bring. But then he remembers that he brought his drum. And so he asked for permission from Mary. Can I play a song for you. Can that be my gift? I don't have gold. I don't have frankincense. I don't have myrrh, but can I play a song? And you know the song and Mary nodded. And then the ox and the lamb, they start marking time. It's a beautiful thing. They're laying down the beat. And then he starts playing and I love the words. He, uh, he, he says, I played my drum for him. I played my best for And if you're like, man, I want uh, my pulse to beat a little bit stronger. I can feel the life down in there, but I, I wish I felt it more. I got some good works, but, but I can do more. To start with what you brought today. Did you bring a marriage today? Start there. What would it look like for you to work for good in your marriage? You got a sweet little one over in the kids' ministry today. What would it look like for you to work for good in the life of your kids? You got a group of friends that you're tied to, heart and soul. What would it look like for you to work for good in Jesus' name? In that circle, you did you bring a job today? You can start there. Did you bring a neighbor to the right and to the left? You can start there. Did you bring some business connections. You can start there. You don't have to worry that you didn't bring gold and you didn't bring frankincense and you didn't bring myrrh. You just start with what you do have. That's the great thing about God is he don't, doesn't hold us accountable for giving him what we don't have. He just asks for what we do have. And if you're like, I want my pulse to beat stronger. I want the good works to be shining off my life like the light in the middle of the darkness then just start with what you brought. Start with what you have. And people will begin to look around and they'll see that your faith is not just a claim. It's not just you trying to come to church to get in a group picture. That it's real, evidenced by the good and hard and best work that you can do the most beautiful and powerful name there is. People will glorify God, our Father, because of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we just ask that you would just lead us today. Where do you want us to start? What can we do today that would be good work, the evidence of genuine faith? 
It doesn't have to be a worldwide ministry. It doesn't have to be some grand idea to reach the city. It doesn't have to be some strategy to create a wave of revival. Just whatever we brought today, that's where we want to start. So lead us, anoint us for that work. Put your hand on us as we shine and we work hard in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to finish our services today with a time of ministry and prayer. So our prayer team is going to come forward and take their places. If this is your first time at Bayou City, we do this every single week. We end our services with a time of prayer because Jesus said that God's house should be called a house of prayer. We take that so seriously. You may be like, well, I can pray by myself just fine. And that's true that you can. But Jesus himself said there's some extra anointing. There's some extra power when we pray together. And so there may be some doors that have been closed to you when you've prayed for yourself that might be opened when you pray for a brother or a sister with a brother or sister today. And so I don't know what God's put on your heart, but come and pray today. Maybe you're going to pray for somebody else, not even going to pray for yourself. Come and pray for them. Maybe you do want to pray for yourself. Maybe you have an illness today that isn't going to wow anybody by its severity, but it's a hindrance to you. Come and pray. We have, listen, we have a mountain of evidence that God can intervene in our help. Maybe you're just overwhelmed today and you need to pray. Whatever God would put on your heart, come in just a moment. And if today you check your pulse and you go, I think maybe I just snuck into the group picture. I don't think that there's any life flowing through these veins other than my physical life, then today's the day for you. You're like, what do I do? It's not faith plus trying to be a good person. It's not faith plus coming to church. It's not a scale. Do a bunch of good stuff. Try to stop doing the bad stuff. It's just believing in Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And when you put all of your faith in him, you cross over from death to life. You're born again into his kingdom. You become sons and daughters of God. And if that's your story today, I don't think there's any life flowing through these veins. Then as other people come forward to pray, you come and just say, hey, I need Jesus. The people down here, they'll know exactly what you're talking about because they were once in your shoes. They were once in your shoes. After church, you can stop by the access room, out these doors to my left, right? Same thing. You want to understand more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is your moment to do that. So God, we put this time of prayer in your hands and we know it's so important and we treat it as so important. And we ask that you would just transform this room into a house of prayer now, that we would come freely, we would come boldly, we would come with at least a mustard seed of faith today. We pray you would answer these requests according to the great name of Jesus, amen.